Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. KQED in San Francisco, I'm Marisa Lagos. Coming up on Forum, Russia continues to rain down missile attacks on Ukraine's capital city, Kiev, as its invasion intensifies. There are now reports that Russian troops entering Kiev, and according to top Biden officials, the city may soon fall. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has vowed to stay and fight. And meanwhile, the UN estimates that roughly 100,000 civilians have fled their homes to escape the violence. We'll talk about the latest developments in Ukraine and what lies ahead. That's coming up after the news. Good morning. This is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in Fermina Kim. On Thursday morning, Russian forces unleashed an air and land assault on Ukraine, and by day's end, troops had taken control of Chernobyl, the site of the 1986 nuclear disaster. The bulk of Russian troops are approximately 30 miles from the nation's capital, Kiev, and there were reports this morning that some troops have entered the capital. On Thursday, top Biden officials told Congress that the city may soon fall. According to the Ukrainian government, as of Thursday night, 137 people have been killed and 316 wounded. Meanwhile, civilians continue their attempts to flee cities under missile assault. In a televised statement Thursday, Ukrainian President Zelensky committed to the fight, saying that a, quote, new Iron Curtain is closing around Eastern Europe and his job is to keep Ukraine in the West. President Joe Biden and leaders around the world condemn the Russian invasion, and Biden also announced sanctions against Russia and its leaders. We're going to talk about the latest developments and what lies ahead. First in, I want to bring in Representative John Garamendi. He represents California's 3rd Congressional District and is a member of the Armed Services Committee and chair of the Armed Services Subcommittee on Readiness. Representative Garamendi, we really appreciate you joining us today. To be with you, I'm very pleased that you're having this uh, discussion. Extremely important. We understand what's going on. 
Extremely important. And I want to get to you on that because you were in Belgium earlier this week uh, participating in the NATO Parliamentary Assembly on behalf of the U.S. At the time, Vladimir Putin moved to recognize the separatist areas of the of Ukraine as independent. And of course, you and all of us have watched as events quickly devolve since then. Um, can you talk about what the U.S. response has been so far in terms of sanctions and other international pressure since this multi-pronged invasion uh, actually began on Thursday? Well, let's start, let's go back just a little bit further. Uh, during the Trump four years, Trump did everything he could to uh, create uh, discord, disarray, and uh, frankly, try to do away with NATO. He had no use for NATO and basically trashed it. So going into the Biden presidency, we had a NATO that was simply not operative. Uh, Biden came in and said, we're going to rebuild NATO and set about doing that. What I saw in Brussels this week was a very unified NATO. We had parliamentarians from all 30 countries, and all of them were unified for the first time probably in more than five years. And they were putting their uh, troops, their military, their uh, whatever they had available into the effort to deter Russia's invasion of Ukraine and also to deter Russia from doing anything at all with regard to the NATO countries. Uh, that solidarity, that unification was remarkable. And at the same time, the European Union, as soon as the uh, declaration by Putin that those two breakaway provinces were going to be uh, independent, uh, the European Union came out immediately with a very strong set of sanctions. Now, this is a European Union that could not agree on the price of milk, right. let alone something as important as as uh, sanctions. But they did that. Well, uh, one day ahead of what uh, President Biden did, the sanctions need, if they're going to be successful, there has to be a very broad base of support. And that is what the Biden administration did for the uh, several months up to uh, the invasion. Right. Uh, also, you have uh, Pacific countries, uh, Japan, Australia, Indonesia, other countries in the Pacific, all pushing back against uh, Russia and Putin. So it's really a worldwide coalition which will make the sanctions far more successful. I mean, and yet he felt emboldened, Putin felt emboldened enough to, you know, put troops on the ground, fire missiles. Um, you know, for the Ukrainian people, I am sure that it is heartening to see this international response, but they are still under siege. Can you talk about like what you see as the kind of timeline in terms of this tightening noose around sanctions and other international response. Is this a sort of long haul that would starve out Putin? Or is this something that could have more you know, immediate impacts as we're watching the capital under assault? Well, there's both immediate and long haul. The, the sanctions have never had two purposes. One is to uh, tell Putin that the sanctions are going to be there if you invade. Uh, he obviously didn't uh, think that that was uh, strong enough, and he went ahead with the invasion. I think over time, he will find that those sanctions are very, very punishing to him and to his cronies, the oligarchs, uh, particularly the oligarchs who are now uh, threatened with having their assets, which are stashed away in various countries around the world, their jets and their yachts and so forth confiscated 
and certainly not being able to use them because they are barred from international travel, they and their families and girlfriends and uh, all the rest. The, uh, the sanctions will have a long-term impact, and, and they're going to have to be in place for a long time. But those sanctions are also a message to the Russian people. I was frankly very, very surprised and delighted that as soon as the invasion began, as soon as the bombs and missiles hit the ground, the Russian people hit the streets in opposition to the war. Mm -hmm. That was not anticipated. I would heard not one piece of intelligence or anything from anybody that that would happen. But that was a spontaneous response of the Russian people who are going to now have their opposition to the war further bolstered by the reality that their economy is going to be severely impacted and ultimately they are too this is the uh that this is really putin's jeopardy it's the russian people if the he's been successful sort of in keeping the russian people off the street 1700 arrests just on the very first day uh and more to come yeah. Uh, as uh, as the war and the deaths and the body bags return to uh, to Moscow, uh, and as the reports of more and more Ukrainians dying and uh, all of the uh, video, so I believe that we're going to see the sanctions having effect far greater than anticipated, because the Russian people have already stated they don't like this war. Yeah. Now I don't think that's a hundred percent of the Russian people to be sure, but enough to go out in the streets. And and we would and I understand the second day there was also demonstrations in the streets. We're talking about the quickly evolving Russian invasion of Ukraine yep. with Representative John Garamendi. Uh, Congressman, I'm curious, the Pentagon announced that it is deploying an additional 7000 troops to Germany to assist in the protection of NATO allies. But the president has promised they won't be entering Ukraine. What is the purpose of those troops? What do the American public need to know about that deployment? The American public needs to know what Putin has demanded. Uh, During the period of uh, negotiations or the attempt to negotiate, uh, when the the trading of letters back and forth uh, between the United States and Russia, uh, Putin's demands never changed. His demands were first that uh, Ukraine would never be a NATO state and would basically bow to Russia, become a vassal state of Russia. Secondly, he demanded that the NATO basically exit the Eastern European countries that have more recently been added to NATO. In other words, roll back NATO. Now, with that in mind, why are we putting more troops into the Eastern European countries? Well, first of all, because they understand the threat that Putin has made to them. Uh, the Baltic countries, uh, it, it is a known, well-known military uh, fact that the Baltic, Baltic countries could be overrun by Russia within hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the troops that are coming from the United States are p- being positioned in those countries as a deterrence to Russia. Similarly, in, the, uh, in Romania, Bulgaria, and Um, Poland. Now, it's just been announced that the NATO rapid response force has been activated, uh, and that will augment other deployments by other nations into the Eastern European NATO countries. 
all to the purpose of telling Putin, don't even think about it. Don't even think about in uh, doing a military or a significant cyber operation uh, in those in NATO countries. Okay. So it's deterrence, deterrence through strength. Uh, the, I think there's a very, very high probability, I would say close to 100 percent, that Putin isn't going to mess with NATO, that his desire to roll back NATO will not be achieved and he will give that up. Again, though, in Ukraine on the ground, um, really yes. horrific scenes playing out. And we're, we are hearing reports, I think potentially that uh, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin uh, briefed Congress that Ukrainians are already running low on ammunition and fuel and anti-tank weapons. Have you received that report? I mean, is it and is it possible at this point for allies of, of Ukraine to help them resupply, given the sort of noose around the country that Putin has lined up? Uh, let me take your, take apart your, your issues. Uh, I was on that call, and Austin and Milley did not say that they're running low. Okay. He, they did say that it is necessary to continue to resupply. Got it. Which I guess you could uh, interpret as running low. Eventually, yes, they're certainly going to run out of uh, munitions. Uh, it's going to be much more difficult to resupply uh, because Russia... Uh, controls most of the access points, but not all. Uh, so it'll have to be uh, convoys on the ground. Uh, the airspace in Ukraine is contested uh, and it's certainly not safe for transport planes to enter uh, into Ukraine. So the resupply is going to be difficult, but still possible. Uh, and that uh, that's absolutely necessary. And the United States and NATO is committed to continue to resupply uh, the necessary armaments, all of them defensive in nature, uh, to the Ukraine military. Uh, it is apparent that the Ukraine military is far more effective than anticipated by the Department, the American Department of Defense, which speaks to the determination. Uh, last night, one of the uh, retired generals that was on one of the shows said, uh, there are two factors in a military campaign. One is the, uh, the the nature of the armaments and the equipment and men and material available. The other is the determination to fight. Mm. And uh, the determination to fight being more important, or at least as important. Thank you so much, Representative Garamendi. We really appreciate you jumping on today. Thank you. Appreciate you uh, getting the information out. We are talking about the quickly evolving Russian invasion of Ukraine. We'll be back after a short break. But in the meantime, what are your thoughts about the situation there? How do you think the United States should respond? Give us a call 866-733-6786. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim. We are talking this morning about the quickly evolving Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, with us now is Alina Polyakova. She is president and CEO of the Center for European Policy An- Analysis and adjunct professor of European studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Alina, welcome to Forum. Thanks so much for having me. We also have Michael uh, Kimmage with us. He's professor and history department chair at Catholic University of America. And from 2014 to 2016, he served on the secretary's policy planning staff at the U.S. Department of State, where he held the Russia-Ukraine portfolio. Uh, Thanks for being here as well, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. Alina, I want to start with you. Um, Maybe for our listeners, if we could just step back and help us make a little sense of how we got to this point, specifically with the main reasons that Putin invaded Ukraine at this moment. You've called this his grievance narrative. Uh, well, that's the, that's exactly what it is. You know, uh, for now decades since Mr. Putin has been in power since the year 2000, which is now 22 years, uh, we have seen a uh, increasingly aggressive rhetoric emerge uh, from Moscow that really sees Putin's mission um, as the leader of so-called modern Russia, to reestablish spheres of influence. So the territories that used to belong to the Soviet Union um, during the Cold War, it has become his mission to ensure that those areas stay uh, under Russia's heel for the foreseeable future. And this is really how we got to Ukraine today. All of the uh, remarks that we've seen recently from the Kremlin are making allegations that this is about potential NATO membership for Ukraine, Uh, making other excuses for what is an incredibly brutal military attack on uh, a victim of Russian aggression. Uh, Those are false, uh, frankly, and we have to call them for what they are, which is just excuses uh, for the the bloodiest uh, military incursion in Europe since the end of the Second World War. Absolutely. Michael Kimmage, um, t- take us up to to the last few years where, you know, we saw what Ukraine was been dubbed their revolution of dignity um, and Russia's response in Crimea. I mean, this has really played out over the last, what, six years? Well, really the last uh, eight years, because 2014. Eight. My uh, math is, is when, bad. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> is, is when the drama begins. Yeah. Um, well, it's a it's a difficult uh, struggle to characterize uh, in uh, in simple terms. Uh, it begins in early 2014 uh, when you have the pro-Russian leader of Ukraine, uh, Yanukovych, fleeing the country. That creates a, a very fluid and unstable situation uh, in which Russia uh, fairly quickly moved to annex Crimea and then to infiltrate eastern Ukraine or the Donbass with. Uh, with Russian soldiers. And then what ensued for about a year was active military conflict between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, And after a series of battlefield successes for Russia, there was uh, a diplomatic settlement, which is really crucial to the current conflict, although it's it's emphatically dead uh, at the moment. Uh, And in this diplomatic settlement, uh, you have uh, uh, a kind of process that's supposed to take place with these two areas of eastern Ukraine, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, where the Russians want them to be a lever 
uh, of control uh, in Ukraine, somewhat along the lines of what Alina was describing, of, of exerting control over a, a neighboring state. And of course, Ukraine wanted to hold on to as much of its sovereignty uh, as it could. And so this is an unre unresolved situation to which lots of Western sanctions were pegged. Uh, and there was a hope that this would work out the crisis uh, by peaceful means. But we've seen in the last 72 hours that that, uh, that hope was an illusion. Yeah. Alina, I mean, what do you think is Putin's ultimate goal here in Ukraine? We we saw um, President Zelensky in a pretty chilling video talking about him being Russia's number one uh, target and, and telling EU leaders it could be the last time they see him. Is that the goal to overthrow this government? Well, unfortunately, increasingly, that that does look like to be the scenario that uh, the Russian invasion is seeking to achieve. Uh, basically to overthrow what has been a democratically elected uh, government um, in Ukraine. And to we don't know what the next steps are, but of course we can imagine potentially be to have a show trial of President Zelensky and others uh, that could t potentially be sent to you know, jail or prison for the rest of their lives. We could also see uh, the Kremlin and Mr. Putin really holding Kiev and Kiev's government as hostage to try to get back uh, some of the concessions that they've been demanding from the very beginning, which, of course, the West uh, and the United States have rejected. If I may, I have one small edit to what Michael said about how we got here uh, since 2014, which is that, yes, the military uh, invasion of Ukraine did begin uh, with Russia's illegal occupation annexation of Crimea. But the way that we started uh, this, this, this drama that we're in today was really because of the Ukrainian people's desire to go and peace in peaceful demonstration to advocate for closer ties with the European Union. This had nothing to do with NATO membership. Um, these protests started uh, during the Revolution of Dignity, as we call it now, in the late fall of 2013. And this is what actually uh, prompted uh, Russia eventually to invade Ukraine um, in Crimea and also in, in the Donbass. So I think we have to remember that this was really about Ukraine's people's desire to move to the West that prompted the Russian war against Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, of course, politics back at home have also impacted this. Um, Michael Kimmich, I'm curious what you think uh, former President Trump's positioning towards NATO and very friendly relationship toward Putin has to do with the timing of this and sort of the moment we're in now. Not much. I think it's a, uh, it's a sideshow, obviously. Uh, there was uh, enormous turbulence in American domestic politics because of connections that uh, Trump and his administration had to, to Ukraine. That was the first drama that uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, faced. And there were uncertainties in Europe when Trump was president. You also had two countries enter the NATO alliance when Trump was president and increased defense spending on the U.S. toward Europe. So there are lots of ambiguities there, but I don't think it really figures prominently in the Russian calculations. Uh, they've been planning this uh, attack for uh, roughly a year, possibly before the uh, American presidential election. Uh, and what's at stake with for Russia is much, much larger than who's in the office, uh, who's in the Oval Office. Uh, they are trying to redraw the map of Europe, uh, to recalibrate their position in Europe, and they're taking an immense risk to do so. But I don't think that, um, you know, Trump, Biden, uh, all of that is uh, is particularly crucial. Uh, U.S. is in some respects a smaller factor in this drama than it uh, often seems from our, 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 our media coverage of it. Um, Alina, do you want to chime in on that at all? I mean, I, I know that 
you know, we've seen President Putin also in both Europe and here, um, you know, work to undermine election security and, and other. So clearly, I mean, he has had an eye on the West as well. But do you agree with Michael's assessment that this is sort of less about those factors? Well, you know, while I agree with Michael, many of his points, I actually do disagree here. Uh, we basically lost uh, the last uh, four, the four years we have the Trump administration to uh, properly secure uh, Ukraine to ensure its independence integration into NATO and the European Union. Yes, it's a mixed bag when it comes to policy and rhetoric, certainly. And there were some good things that the Trump administration did achieve. But to my mind, from the Russian perspective, this is all about the United States. Uh, for years now, there has been growing rhetoric from the Russian media, Russian officials, including Mr. Putin, starting in 2007 with a speech he delivered at the Munich Security Conference, where he clearly pointed to the United States as the main enemy for Russia, responsible in Mr. Putin's uh, rather demented narrative, frankly, for all of the democratic uh, movements, demonstrations, revolutions that we've seen across the world, obviously, including in Ukraine. So to my mind, this has everything to do with the United States, uh, which Russia sees as the only relevant leader of the transatlantic alliance of the free world. And of course, as we've seen, that that has been made very, very, very clear. You know, Russia in its so-called negotiations only wanted to talk to the United States. It didn't want to talk to Germany or France, really. The demands were on the United States and they were on NATO. And the U.S. Um, is seen by the Russians as the main decision maker in NATO as well. So to my mind, this has everything to do uh, with Russia's framing of the world order as still a bipolar battle uh, between Russia and the United States. And unfortunately, Ukraine is the, is the ultimate victim of this. Yeah. Uh, Amy writes, can your guests respond to what the former U.S. President Trump <laughs> said in regard to Putin's moves and strategies towards his barbaric attack on Ukraine? Uh, she says it's so outrageous and so dangerous and it's firing up his base. How do we frame this in historical context? I hope many denounce him vociferously. Um, and I, I guess we should say that, you know, uh, Trump was on Fox News as this unfolded and, and in days before that had sort of praised Putin as strong. Um, Michael, what's, what's your response to Amy's uh, comment? Well, she's right to be distur disturbed, but she shouldn't be too surprised. It's very consistent with Trump's messaging going back to his campaign and, and at various points in his uh, in his presidency, let's remember that this is the president who, in Helsinki, praised, uh, you know, praised Putin uh, above uh, U.S. intelligence services, and uh, it's it's just not uh, out of character for Trump. It speaks to the political strategy that he and some Republicans are going to use for the midterm elections and for the 2024 presidential election, which is to characterize Biden both as weak. You know, Trump said it wouldn't have happened on my watch, but also to characterize Biden as sort of unnecessarily committed. Uh, to certain countries, and and that Trump has a preference for authoritarian Russia over democratic Ukraine is again very consistent with his wing of the Republican Party and with his character. So that's that's where we are in terms of history. I would say that that's pretty unprecedented. I can't think of any chapter of the Cold War in which you would have such a wide degree of of, of division about basic questions in American foreign policy. I mean, given what we've seen, though, Michael, in the past few days, is there any truth to the criticism we're seeing from Republicans well beyond Trump about, you know, characterizing President Biden as a not strong enough that he didn't go far enough with sanctions earlier, things like that? Not in my, not in my view. I think, you know, Alina may differ in this uh, assessment, but... Uh, 
you know, I think Biden came in with a few tweaks, but a fairly standard Russia policy. Uh, and, you know, uh, it's it's doubtful to me that if he had come in pledging more sanctions or, you know, with a tougher rhetoric that, that Putin would really have changed his, uh, that he would really have changed his calculus. So, you know, I, I think it's, uh, uh, it's really beside the point. We could have a broader conversation about mistakes in U.S.-Ukraine policy going back to 2014. And there mm -hmm. it's, you know, it is possible to look critically at aspects of U.S., uh, of U.S. policy, but I think has nothing to do with Biden's alleged weakness. We have uh, some comments. Um, uh, some folks have some specific questions. Uh, Kim writes, NATO must do must and do everything possible to help Ukraine stop Putin. Can NATO provide a no-fly zone and stop air attacks? Sanctions are not enough. And similarly, Daniel from Sacramento is on the line with another question as well. Daniel, go ahead. Hey, Daniel, you there? Hello. Hey. Yes. So uh, we are inhibited in the West. We are inhibited by our concern about starting a nuclear war with Russia. And so we're holding back. And one of the ways that we might not hold back is from from outside uh, Ukrainian airspace. But from within, say, Poland airspace, we have... Uh, weapons that are accurate enough uh, to um, pick off uh, tanks as they enter the Ukrainian territory. Uh, in other words, we have very accurate weapons, and we could do this. But by the way, uh, uh, one of the problems with the Russians is they don't have accurate weapons, and that's why they're starting to do essentially carpet bombing. Uh, and that's why there are so many civilian ca casualties. Good question, Daniel. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. Alina, go ahead. Tell what, What's your response to these uh, questions? Well, I agree with the, the caller's general sentiment that uh, we, we should be doing more on security assistance. But I also agree that the Biden administration has done everything it possibly can to give Russia a diplomatic uh, off-ramp before the Mr. Putin made this decision to invade. So I think the administration should be commended for especially getting the allies on board, which is no easy task on sanctions. But clearly, as a deterrent, sanctions have failed uh, because, of course, we're seeing uh, the consequences of that now in this, in this military invasion. I think, unfortunately, it's very difficult for NATO uh, to do that much to provide security assistance to Ukraine, including well, I think the first caller mentioned uh, blocking the uh, the airspace over Ukraine. Uh, that would be seen as a declaration of war de facto. Um, I don't think uh, the U.S. is prepared uh, to do that. I don't think you know allies are prepared to do that. So what we're actually seeing is more of a deterrent uh, strategy on NATO's territory, on NATO's eastern flank, because the reality we're likely going to have very, very unfortunately speaking as someone who is from Ukraine, who is from Kiev, mm. um, is that you know we're going to have Russian-controlled territory directly on the border uh, with Poland if uh, the, the current uh, dynamic and the current war d develops in the direction that all of us fear. So yes, I would like to see more on security assistance. Uh, my hope is that we are doing that covertly and we're not speaking about publicly. Uh, that is my understanding of what's happening, but obviously uh, I don't have any details of that because that is uh, classified. And is that because 
it really changes the stakes if there's actual U.S. military involvement, directly engagement with Russia? Well, absolutely. It also uh, raises the stakes quite significantly. And uh, President Biden uh, very early on said that he would not be sending you know, boots on the ground to Ukraine. Mm. And I think that directly comes from the recent experience in Afghanistan. And the, the, the reality, there's very little appetite among most Americans on both sides of the aisle for any more direct U.S. military engagement anywhere in the world. And certainly, unfortunately, Ukraine is part of that. Can you talk a little bit, Alina, about the popular response in Russia? Uh, Representative Garamendi talked about some of the protests we've seen um, at the top. Do you think, were you surprised at all? Do you think that President Putin is surprised? Well, we certainly know that there are independent voices and there is dissent in Russia, which over the last several years, uh, the Kremlin has worked uh, very actively to clamp down on. I would like to mention that Alexei Navalny, Russia's main political opposition leader, uh, remains in jail uh, for the foreseeable future. We don't talk about that uh, often enough, frankly. Uh, So what we've seen is a similar response now where we've seen peaceful demonstrators against the war being arrested, uh, being thrown into police cars. Um, This is the kind of uh, state that we have in Russia today. It is a deeply authoritarian, uh, a tyrannical state. Uh, I think those Russians were incredibly brave to go on the streets um, to protest government actions. They knew what the consequences would be. And I just have to say, I was uh, very happy to see those demonstrations. Obviously, I wish it was millions of Russians on the Mm. streets. But the unfortunate reality is that after years and years of state-funded propaganda, uh, many Russians actually do believe um, that the Kremlin is in Ukraine not out of aggression, but to protect and liberate Ukrainians, which is, of course, a complete lie. But because so many Russians still get most of their information from state-controlled media outlets and television elsewhere, uh, there are many who support this war effort. And I think what we saw was really, unfortunately, a minority. Yeah. You know, Alina, I know you're here as an analyst, but you mentioned you're from Kiev. And I I'm just wanted to ask how you're doing, how your family is. Um, this must be just devastating to watch from afar. No, well, I appreciate that. Uh, really, I do. And I've had so many uh, friends uh, reach out to me in the last couple of days to um, express their concern. Um, I'm very lucky that my, my immediate family, uh, meaning my, my parents and my sister, are in the United States. You know, we immigrated some years ago. Uh, but we all have uh, very close friends in Ukraine who are all, frankly, terrified, but incredibly courageous. I haven't talked to a single person. I've talked to many, uh, many people in Ukraine in the last several days. Um, who is actually planning on leaving. Um, and that is incredible, uh, given the kind of military operations we're seeing there. For their sake, I hope that they will eventually uh, leave because some of these people could be on the so-called kill list right. uh, that we've heard so much about. But um, it's, it's been really tough, to be honest with you, to have the analytical hat while at the same time I'm seeing uh, you know, bombs exploding uh, over my hometown. Absolutely. We are talking about the quickly evolving Russian invasion of Ukraine with Alina Polyakova. She is president and CEO of the Center for European Policy Analysis. We're also talking to Michael Kimmage, professor of and history department chair at Catholic University of America. We'll be right back after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos, uh, Informina Kim, and we are talking about the quickly evolving Russian invasion of Ukraine with Michael Kimmage, professor and history department chair at Catholic University of America, and Alina Polyakova, president and CEO of the Center for European Policy Analysis and adjunct professor of European Studies at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Alina, I know you have to go in uh, in just a moment, so um, I, I wanted to have you respond to... Um, A question. Angela writes, I think the current administration is doing everything they can. The hope of diplomacy was what we should always have when entering into a tense and weird situation with a sovereign country like Russia. Um, She wants to know what ordinary citizens in the U.S. can do to support the Ukrainian people right now. Well, I I really appreciate the kind of support that we've seen across the country. So many uh, American cities have been lit up with the colors of the Ukrainian flag. It's been incredible to watch. And I think For Ukrainians, this is so meaningful because it's easy to feel uh, abandoned, certainly. Uh, Many Ukrainians have expressed that they wish that uh, the U.S., that NATO had been able to do more, uh, more than the current sanctions that we've been hearing about the last several days. But I think in terms of what Americans can do, one, there are many nonprofits in Ukraine that are uh, supporting uh, Ukraine's ability to defend itself by uh, collecting uh, money, not necessarily for military means, but for humanitarian support, uh, for supplies, things of that nature. We are already seeing a huge number of Ukrainian refugees in Poland, um, in Romania, and that this will continue, unfortunately. We're likely to reach very high, high numbers of those that are trying to flee the war in Ukraine. And these people will need support, they will need help, they will need food, they will need housing. Um, everything that, uh, you know, refugees will need in this environment. So I think uh, there are some very good nonprofits that are trying to provide these kinds of resources. Uh, Obviously, do do your research, make sure they're legitimate. But I think this would go a long way to, one, make the Ukrainian people feel like the world is with them, but two, to provide real humanitarian help um, to those who urgently need it right now. All right. Uh, Trish writes, if all Western imports to Russia could be halted on well-publicized grounds that is being done in response to Putin's decision to invade Ukraine, it would have major detrimental impact upon the Russian population. If they all understand it's Putin's fault, perhaps the Russian population will, quote, revolt against him in one way or another. If you cut off the blood supply, cancer dies. Michael, can you respond to that? I mean, obviously, these sanctions are aimed at putting pressure on Putin and Russian oligarchs um, and to some extent disrupting, I think some of their ability to carry out this war, but it is going to have an impact on the Russian people. Oh, for sure. And uh, sanctions are at best a blunt instrument. I think if anything, the 2014 sanctions in the first round of this conflict probably 
encourage Russians to rally around Putin and didn't have that kind of uh, didn't have that kind of effect. I mean, I think that you have to be both sort of sober and analytically very careful about what you're trying to achieve with with sanctions. Uh, as Alina said, we didn't manage to deter Russia with the threat of sanctions. Uh, and I doubt that uh, Putin will change his military calculus in the next two, three months uh, because of sanctions. So that's, uh, you know, something that sanctions can't exactly do. But of course, over a long period of time, they can uh, have an effect. Uh, what you would want is uh, for Russia to scale back. I think sanctions that are pinned to regime change uh, sounds both uh, to me uh, unre unrealistic in nature and also undesirable uh, in outcome. Russia remains you know, an enormous nuclear state. So the idea of toppling Putin's government as a aspiration of American foreign policy, I think is just way off the mark. Yeah. I want to bring in Newkeel, a caller from Berkeley. Newkeel, go ahead. Hi there. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm trying to understand the broader context of how the sanctions fit in with sort of um, China and how if one of the big asymmetric advantages of the United States is access to foreign capital, and the sanctions are supposed to sort of deter that. Um, curious how sort of China fits into that picture and what that means, especially, you know, with, for instance, uh, the softening of wheat export and all that kind of stuff. I was hoping the panelists could comment on that. Great question. Uh, we actually had to say goodbye to Alina. We really appreciate her. Michael Kimmage, uh, your response. I think it's ambiguous what role China is going to play in all of this. I think they're happy to see the U.S. get pinned down in Europe. Um, I think they're happy to a degree to see the rules of the international order get rewritten in this manner, more toward might makes right than toward something of an international system, certainly a, an American-led international system. On the other hand, China is not overjoyed to see war in Ukraine, which is an economic partner uh, of China's, and certainly doesn't want to see Russia destabilize Europe in some broader way because Europe is one of the <laughs> one of the entities that helps to make China uh, prosperous. So um, nobody can quite figure out what the nature of that relationship is between China and Russia, perhaps not even these two countries themselves. To a degree, China will be a backstop uh, for Russia when it comes to sanctions. Uh, they've already you know, indicated that in a number of ways. Uh, at the same time, if the sanctions begin to bite into China's own economic assets and profits, uh, they could uh, you know, sort of leave Russia uh, in the lurch. That seems entirely possible to me uh, as well. So it's an open question. It's a very good question. I think, uh, um, you know, only the next six months or so will we'll, we'll tell on that on that account. Is there any I, I know there's been a lot of sort of unconfirmed reports about Putin being open to talks and then not. Is there a role for China in that? I have to make sure I understand your question. Do you mean I mean, talks could between, talks between, between Russia and the West, essentially. I mean, is that is is there any sort of constructive relationship you could see China playing in this conflict? No, I think I, even a, two weeks ago, I might have answered this question differently. I think that one can say with clarity and emphasis, there will be no normal diplomacy between Russia and the West for as long as Putin is in power. That's that's it. It's it's over. Uh, Emmanuel Macron went to, to Moscow. Uh, he was given reassurances that Russia, Russia would de-escalate uh, in Belarus uh, and around the border of Ukraine. And then Russia, a few days later, invaded uh, invaded Ukraine. So Putin has spent all of that capital, such as it was prior to this crisis. And there will be no trust of Putin for as long as he's, uh, he's in office. So, you know, whether it's China, whether it's Turkey, whether it's some other country that would attempt to, attempt to be a mediator, uh, I suppose it's sort of technically possible. Uh, but uh, given the lack of trust in the West, it's just not going to go anywhere. 
Yeah. I want to bring in Vlad Scotts. He is chairman of Ukrainian American House in Sacramento, where there is a very large Ukrainian population. Um, He has family in Ukraine. Vlad, thank you so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I I have to ask just how you are doing and, and what you are hearing from your family in Ukraine right now. Uh, we are staying very close to Ukraine. I have my parents there. My five brothers are there. My colleagues, my employees in Kiev, in Odessa. So I'm 24-7 staying in touch with Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine uh, facing those, the most critical moment now, next four eight hours probably, because uh, it will on question now. It's about fully invasion. Putin already started to attack uh, whole country, Kiev, capital town, and other area. But those um, uh, next 48 hours, I think that's uh, critical because on question the whole uh, future Ukraine. Yeah. Are your, I mean, what is it like in Ukraine for folks you're talking to? Are they... You know, we've seen images of folks huddled in underground train stations as bomb shelters, people fleeing. Um, I imagine it's very difficult to get food or or sort of any resources. What what is the sort of reality there? And and, and what are you hearing from your family about, like, how they're just sort of dealing with today? Yeah, let me explain. Ukraine, like particularly Kiev, I'm very often used to be in Kiev, like uh, sometimes five years, five times a year. Mm. So Ukraine, it's very advanced uh, country, especially Kiev. That's very busy, innovative town. There was a lot of international companies there. My office in Kiev was as well. Uh, people travel, IT stuff. So people remind me like New York uh, or San Francisco. That's that's very advanced town. Mm-hmm. And now uh, everything like flipped because as of today, uh, people talking how not to die. So in each area, uh, in schools, uh, hospitals, they're trying to lay out map uh, where's closest a bomb shelter if if in case if they have to go there how to get the power bank to charge uh, phones if out of power if uh, how to stock water how to stock food so it's very devastating what is everything happened there in the civilized country yeah i can't even imagine Michael Kimmage, I mean, I t- we talked with Alina a bit earlier about, like, what the ultimate goal here could be. Um, is it, you know, overthrowing the Zelensky government? What, I, when you look at this, um, having, you know, watched Putin for so long, what do you think his goal is? And what could that mean, you know, if Kiev does fall for the the people there in the coming days and weeks? Right. Well, the, the goal, I think, is has two stages or two dimensions. Uh, and the first would be uh, sort of negative in nature. It's to block certain kinds of outcomes. Uh, this is where we began the conversation. So Putin doesn't want Ukraine not just to join NATO, but doesn't want it to have any kind of military connection uh, to the West. And that's been growing in the last couple of years. And that's something that Putin simply wants to, to terminate. He, of course, wants Ukraine to sign on to some notion of, uh, of neutrality. You heard news about that uh, this morning in terms of possible talks between Zelensky uh, and Putin. So that's the minimal, uh, that's the minimal goal here uh, in terms of what this military action has been organized for and what it's being, uh, what it's being used for. But it's also, and I think given the scale of the invasion, which is enormous, uh, important to consider the more maximal 
uh, goal that Putin probably has for this uh, invasion, then this would be one of two things, either to partition the country, and it seems like the Russian activities around Kiev sort of indicate that this might be their preferred direction and to make Kiev the capital of a, uh, of a new country or sort of new entity that would be under direct or indirect uh, Russian control with a, uh, with a puppet leader. Or the most maximalist uh, uh, goal would be to conquer the country outright uh, and to attempt to transform it into a kind of colony uh, of Russia. It sounds a bit like science fiction. I think it won't go that far, but uh, the scale of the invasion suggests a very large scale of ambition on Putin's part. We are talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the global response with Michael Kimmage. He's professor of history at Catholic University of America and co-authored a recent article, What If Russia Wins, in Foreign Affairs magazine. We also have Vlad Scotts here. He's chairman of the Ukrainian American House in Sacramento. He is Ukrainian and has family back there. You are listening to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in Fermina Kim. I want to uh, turn to a caller now. We have Ide in Berkeley. I'd go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, I like to say we're really going down a slippery slope of nuclear war. That is awful. I like to repeat the word of uh, Robert Oppenheimer when he said, I created this, and this he created. Just to remind everybody, 7 gram uranium and plutonium killed almost, really overall, instantaneously or over years, about half a million Japanese, immediately about 200,000. We have, well, we don't, well, not wise, we still have a big part of our brain from, you know, the ancient time of Hall. So we need to get wise, be able to take care of This is not correct. I put a lot of blame on Putin, of course. Right. He always have been, uh, you know, not exactly sane. But we can't leave the whole future of Earth in his hand. Yeah. We need to get a lot of wise, be able, and make sense of what is going on, because I do care more about humanity uh, but then, you know, well, let's look what happened in the Middle East. Look what happened. George W. Yeah. Bush killed over too many Iraqis. Absolutely. Thanks for the call, Ed. We really appreciate it. Um, we have some other questions. Trish writes, if all Western imports to Russia could be halted on well-publicized grounds, that it is... Oh, we already read that one. I'm sorry. Um, Jonathan writes, did Trump's withdrawal from the Iran nuclear agreement increase Europe's dependence on Russia for natural gas and oil? Uh, Michael, what do you think? Let me take these two questions in turn. In terms of the nuclear dimension, it's it's a very helpful point, and uh, nobody can forget that. I'm afraid in this in this contest, it's okay. it's immensely complicated diplomatically because, as we've talked about, there are sanctions. There's going to be reassurance of NATO's eastern flank, potentially supporting uh, an insurgency uh, in Ukraine. There are lots of efforts that are going to be put to to hold back or to sort of contain the Russian advance here. Uh, all of that is, uh, is, is necessary at the moment, but at the same time, the Biden administration has to make it a cardinal responsibility to keep lines of communication open with Putin and with his, uh, with his government and with his military for the sake of deconfliction for the first, on, on, on the one hand, not having US and Russian planes collide over the airspace of Ukraine, uh, and also just to prevent accidents from pushing us toward uh, an escalation that could eventually become uh, nuclear. Twice in the last couple of days, Putin has mentioned his willingness to use nuclear weapons against European countries. There's not much we can do about that. We have to, uh, you know, sort of be aware of that. That's a very terrifying prospect, and that's not a a reason to back down by any means. Uh, but we have to be, uh, you know, just very aware of that. In terms of uh, yeah, oil. I mean, because that's an, a concern for the U.S. as well, right? 
Yes, and in terms of the Iran deal, I think that in practical terms, Iran is going to gain quite a bit of leverage over the U.S. and over Europe at the moment. And so that probably will shift the nature of the negotiations uh, there. There's just going to be a need for access to uh, to Iranian oil, and that's kind of uh, that's how it is. I mean, neither Europe nor the, U- nor the U.S. is sort of perfectly positioned to wean themselves off of Russian gas uh, and, and oil. So that will be a work in progress. But uh, an, a near-term beneficiary of that will be Iran. Absolutely. Uh, Vlad Scott's uh, chairman of the Ukrainian-American House in Sacramento. Um, we've heard a lot of people today asking what they can do to help. Can you talk about how Americans can support Ukrainians, whether in practical or sort of uh, bigger term ways? Yeah, sure. And I think it's very important for everybody to provide support for the Ukraine because the standard we All right. We lost Vlad for just a minute. Um, we will come back to him. I know that that a lot of people have questions. I mean, Michael, from your perspective, um, is, you know, donating to humanitarian organizations a good way for Americans uh, to show their support? Is there political pressure that, that folks should be applying or or is that not necessary at this point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's necessary. I would say three steps uh, to turn off SWIFT from the Russia and protect the airspace of the Ukraine. Um, and uh, NATO should be involved to protect Ukraine because Putin won't stop in Ukraine. Uh, he will go farther. Um, Michael, your, your thoughts, like what, what could sort of average Americans do right now? Let me offer two separate words of, uh, of advice to your, your listenership. I think that the humanitarian obligations are extraordinarily important. The population of Ukraine is is very large, close to 40 million people. Uh, And the effects of this war, even if the best case scenarios uh, come to to be, the effects of this war are going to be devastating for the population of Ukraine. So there are, I I, I know, many charities and many uh, instruments and institutions that can be used to to help this uh, this beleaguered population. The other responsibility is much more abstract, or the other thing that we can do is much more uh, abstract. We're now living in a new world. Uh, the nuclear dynamic is different. Europe is a very, very different entity from what it was even a few weeks ago. There's much more conflict uh, on the horizon uh, because of this war. Russia is playing a far more aggressive and reckless role on the international stage than even a year or two ago. We have to come to grips with that. We have to figure out what this means. We have to think it through. We have to think through what the best American foreign policy is in light of this new world. We have to be cautious. <laughs> you know, We have to avoid escalation. Uh, unnecessary escalation. We also have to stick up for uh, our European partners and allies and for the best traditions of American foreign policy. It's not going to be easy, but there's a real task of recalibration. All right. We are going to leave it there. Michael Kimmage, professor of history at Catholic University of America. Thank you so much for your time today. And Vlad My Scott, pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Vlad Scott's chairman of the Ukrainian American House in Sacramento. Vlad, our thoughts are with you and your family. Thank you. I appreciate your Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, and Caroline Smith. Susan Britton is the lead producer for the 10 o'clock hour. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, and our interns are Jennifer Ng and Paul C. Kelly Campos. Our executive editor is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in Fermina Kim. We'll see you next week. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, 
the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.